It is not easy to read a medieval manuscript. And that might be putting it mildly. That's right. Historian Nicholas Paul pours over documents from the High Middle Ages to do his research. For the most part, um, these are narratives that were recorded in the 12th and 13th centuries. Some of the manuscripts he reads are over 100 pages long, which wouldn't be bad, except the manuscripts are written by hand. And not just one hand, several hands. Different people are doing the writing, and sometimes the lines are erased and then written over again, or words are just written over top of lines that someone didn't bother to erase in the first place. Th those are just some of of the smaller problems. That's right. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson, and I say this to give you an idea of the kind of painstaking, old-fashioned detective work it takes to be a medieval historian like Nicholas Paul. He's an assistant professor of history at Fordham University, and he's doing some detective work now, studying family histories that were recorded during medieval times. These stories are interesting to Paul because even after he's deciphered pages and pages of jumbled up lines and different handwriting, usually in Latin, after all that, there's still a mystery to solve. What these stories are and why they exist. They're kind of extraordinary because they, they suddenly seem to appear um, in, the, in the 11th century um, and then they, they spread out and you find examples of them from everywhere, from Poland in the east to uh, Barcelona in the west, um, although you don't find as many examples from Italy or further north across a kind of belt um, straight through continental Europe. You find examples of these family histories, and a lot of them are really quite similar. So there's a question as to what we're looking at here. Is it a genre? Is this, a, is this kind of a fad that people have for writing these things down? Um, and, uh, and one way of, of looking at these things, one way of answering that question is to look at things they have in common, uh, stories and images that they have in common and ways they might have been useful for these different families. And one thing that a lot of them have in common is a lot of them tell stories about the Crusades because that's something that these families also had in common, uh, that they participated in these extraordinary uh, long-distance uh, military penitential wars. Uh, so this, these kinds of stories made their way into these narratives. So that's one, one way of trying to find out what these narratives were for, is to look at how they treat similar kinds of images. And there's a whole range of images in these particular narratives associated with the Crusades that you wouldn't find anywhere else. So that's another reason why it's really valuable to look at these, because historians who study the Crusades often tend to look at uh, a, a particular body of evidence. Um, either they look at histories of the expeditions, where you know someone who was there with Richard the Lionheart in Syria chooses to write down or sing a song about their experience and what you hear about the big battles and you hear about who died where and uh, uh, you hear about Saladin and all these kinds of things. Um, and uh, those are the sort of general pictures that you get. These are these are kind of global pictures. Uh, or you might read documents that were written, you know, right at the point of departure, telling you how much something costs, when someone's leaving, where they're going, etc., uh, which are, you know, the, the opposite end of the scale. Those are extremely local, and the, the kind of evidence they present is extremely limited. Uh, although interesting, it's very limited. And these are kind of somewhere in the middle because they're very localized. They deal with particular people and their particular experiences. Uh, and what they show us is something very different <laughs> from those global narratives uh, and those those localized documents. They have a they have a kind of a poetics of their own. One of the things I'm arguing is that there's a poetics of a dynastic crusading memory, which uh, uh, explains a lot about how people understood what they were doing 
uh, when they went on crusade. What do you, I want to lean into that. What do you mean by that? What does it explain about their motivation? Well, motivation is a big part of what what the study of the Crusades has been about for about the last twenty or thirty years. Uh, essentially, before that, in the in the first half of the twentieth century, uh, the Crusades were to some extent dismissed as a, a phenomenon that had a lot to do with simple economic motivations um, and brutal conquest, and and not very much else. Uh, uh, and what nobody really considered was was what would actually make someone go on crusade on a, in a much more sort of uh, forensic level, because you know you you couldn't explain all of this using the mechanisms that uh, that, that were presented. The most common one was known as the younger son thesis. That the reason why people went on crusade was because they were they didn't inherit anything. They were younger sons. The elder son inherited all of the property and land. And the younger son needed to go and do something else <laughs> because there was nothing for them at home. So the picture those those historians painted was of Europe full of these violent. Uh, 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 greedy younger sons who needed an outlet for their violence and for their their desire for land and power, and that going to the east was one way to satisfy that hunger. And you know, it's entirely possible that that was the case for for some people. But uh, when you sort of look across people who participated in crusades in the 12th and 13th centuries, that's not the kind of people you find. You actually find people who already have a lot of power and territory and are very happy <laughs> where they are, uh, sacrificing all of that. To do something which was very, very dangerous, enormously expensive. So it's not a good investment is the, the way to look at it that way. So the question is why? Why were they doing it? Um, and why? <laughs> well, uh, there there are a number of different uh, strands that feed into you know what we think of as being you know the global picture of crusader motivation. Some of those are potentially uh, to do with economics. Some of them are to do with lordship. What's lordship? Lordship meaning that you know you might have to go because someone who is kind of in charge of you says we're going now. <laughs> the that that w- within your network of power politically, someone might decide that this is what the best idea was for you and your entire network of people. So you would all go. Okay. Uh, that, that's another fairly simple explanation. Doesn't really kind of work on the ground for the kinds of people who went. There are a whole variety of ways which, on the ground, that 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 would destabilize a region. You know, it would, it would create all kinds of problems if you really wanted to take out all of the the people who controlled the area and leave. Then you would leave some kind of a vacuum. It, w- it wouldn't it wouldn't be a prudent exercise in government <laughs> if you were one of these powerful regional princes who went on crusade. So the kinds of explanations that have been finding more currency in the last 30 years have had to do with things like individual pious motivation. So they've seen the crusades for how they were presented, which is as penitential exercises in salvation, that the reason we undertook crusade was precisely because it was incredibly dangerous and very, very expensive, because you were doing something that was going to expiate your sins. Uh, and these are the kinds of people who racked up a lot of sins. <laughs> so when, they, uh, when, when the opportunity came around to achieve what was offered to them by the pope, which was a plenary indulgence, a remission for all the sins that they had uh, confessed at that point, then this was a great opportunity. There was nothing like it. There was no other way um, for an individual who lived their life by violence to achieve this kind of assurity of salvation that you could through crusading. So the people who are the people who are going on these participating in the crusades, mm-hmm. which is just kind of Christendom's campaign against 
mostly Muslims in the East? Initially, the fir- I mean, the First Crusade was was preached uh, to go to the aid of the Eastern Church is about as good as we can nail down what anybody said at the time, because everything was written down afterwards. So it's very difficult to figure out what exactly was was intended. But yes, in aid of the Eastern Church and liberation of Jerusalem was probably right up there among the, the goals of the crusade. But it was very quickly uh, translated into a whole range of different expressions, uh, which could range from crusading against pagans in the north and the Baltic region, um, which seems to have been done within maybe seven or eight years of the First Crusade under the same banner, with the same understanding of salvation, with the same mechanism. And then in Spain, where there was already quite a lot of tension, violence uh, between the Christian and Muslim communities in Spain, this crusading idea was applied to those wars gradually over the course of about 20 or 30 years. In some places it caught on immediately. In some places it took longer to catch on. It's Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson and my guest is medieval historian Nicholas Paul. We're talking about the stories he studies of noble family histories written down right around the time of the Crusades. For Paul, these stories are precious for what they reveal about the motivations of those who went crusading. It's very difficult to try and gauge what somebody is thinking, why why they're doing something, you know, on the ground. You can read a letter written by the Pope to all of the people living in Catalonia saying, all of you should do this for these reasons. Then if they do it, do we know are they embracing the Pope's offer or are they just doing something they would have done anyway? Are they using this to their advantage or are they believing what they're hearing? Um, and, you know, you could also look at sermons that are preached on the ground in Spain, uh, some of which use the same kind of ideology. But again, well, how much does this tell us about what people are actually thinking? And it's obviously, ultimately, when you're dealing with medieval history, it's pretty much impossible to get right down to what an individual is really thinking, what their real individual motivations are. As a historian, that's one of the things you always grapple with. Because but, so little is written down, because so few people are literate? The mediation of the text through literate people who are themselves usually associated with the church and therefore already plugged into a kind of way of understanding these things, is that definitely inhibits your ability to uh, to, to get it to, to the individual. But, but, you know, I'd say that's true of virtually any period in history. I mean, even when you do have diaries, you have questions about, you know, whether somebody's being honest and etc. In this case, one of my contributions to this, uh, hopefully, is uh, an understanding of how a family looked upon those who had died in battle in Spain over time and understood what they were doing, essentially, in how they remembered them. So in the family history of the Council of Barcelona, which was written in Catalonia up in the foothills of the Pyrenees in the probably in the 1170s or 1180s, it looked back on a history of this family interacting with their Muslim neighbors going all the way back to the ninth century. And what's interesting about it is how it tends to project backwards in time this very recent sense of crusading. Uh, so sort of you can see the crusading ideology that has been preached on the ground and has been, been present in the papal letters and these sorts of things, this whole idea of the redemption of sin, et cetera, of being applied within this family. And they become these, these strong Christian conquerors, and they've always been strong Christian conquerors. That's implicit in their identity. In fact, it justifies who they are and why they are who they are. So that, that is the whole reason why they're nobility. It's the whole reason why they're the counts. It's because they have been at war uh, on the, along these lines. So the Crusades have, have kind of 
altered the perception of the past and the perception of legitimacy and government and those kinds of things on, on, a, on a really substantial level. So when I was prepping for this, I was thinking about, I don't, I don't really know what made a family noble. Mm. And I, I think it was, as I remember, like things that were quite arbitrary or kind of like also projected back in time, like things that kind of sprung up out of nowhere. Am I on to anything here? No, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the question of what constitutes nobility is, that's a very serious question. There is a distinct category of nobility, which is an inherited kind of aristocratic power associated with landholding almost always and particular kinds of rights uh, and responsibilities. The issue is, you know, where, where does that, where does, where do you earn the distinction, right? Um, now, and they must have to explain it. I mean, if they write down their history, they must give some proof of like this is why we are different. Absolutely, there are there are essentially two major reasons that that a noble family will give to explain their nobility. One is that they've been granted this authority by some other legitimate power. So, um, for many many noble families, they reach back in time, and they create a moment where some extremely legitimate figure like Charlemagne, or even in one case, in case one family, they go back to ancient Rome and they say, you know, that they were handed this responsibility by this legitimate figure. And sometimes it's very literally handed the responsibility uh, uh, by, by, some, by some kind of super power figure, king, a king or a, a, an emperor. But everyone would have agreed in the period that I'm talking about in the 12th and 13th centuries, that nobility also involved a range of other kinds of behavior. So, you know, you essentially had to be noble as well by your deeds as by your birth. Uh, you had to kind of hold up your nobility publicly through show, through performance. Oh. And performance could mean lots of things. It could mean, you know, what you were wearing, <laughs> what you were eating, whether you went to tournaments and how you did, who you married, etc. All of these things kind of could cohere around this idea of nobility. But nothing would really offer you as much of an opportunity to demonstrate your nobility as performance in a, in a crusade because it offered the opportunity for the highest authority that anyone knew, which was God, essentially to judge you, to witness your deeds. You're fighting on the behalf of the Lord, not just any Lord, but the Lord. And the Lord could, you know, would see that and smile upon your uh, actions, essentially, on the battlefield uh, in a way that no emperor or king ever really could. And you also had this exposure to all of these other noble people. <laughs> so while you were on crusade, you, you could know, network. Exactly. So really? you might, yeah, I mean, you broader kind of crusade chronicles are full of instances where the king who's on crusade, for instance, might recognize the great deeds done by someone in their entourage. And everyone recognizes the whole army. You're behind, you're in front of this great audience. You know, you, you, if you, if you really are quite brave, then that story is going to, it's going to get back to your people. It's going to, it's something that you can really use. On the contrary, of course, if you're not, as was the case often during, the, especially the First Crusade, which was a terrifying event for those who participated and uh, involved a lot of flight. A lot of people ran away from the First Crusade. And those stories, you know, they could they could keep hurting you <laughs> uh, for a long time in the future. And they could, they could be used by your enemies against you and that, those sorts of things. So, the, so this from the Crusades arose this kind of discourse about honor and strength and nobility, which would then continue to inform the way people talked about this for a long time. You wrote an article about, I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong, Folklerishin? Or... It's like we don't even know how to pronounce the guy's oh. name. It either de depends on how you, it's full, well, it's generally said as Folklerishin, oh, but it either means um, folk 
uh, uh, the rasper, as the, which is explained by the idea that he had some kind of a he couldn't speak correctly, or Folk the shark. <laughs> so, uh, both of which are pretty great. They, who, they both, who is Folk? Uh, okay, so he was the Count of Anjou um, in the uh, last decades of the 11th century. Modern uh, day France? Uh, uh, yes, sorry. Uh, this is a northwestern, in what is now northwestern France. At the time, though, it was just Anjou. You would just say you were in Anjou. It was a completely independent polity. And Folk, he was the Count although he referred to himself, as did other members of his family, as a consul, using the old Roman term consul, um, which was sort of uh, something that his family were particularly proud of. They used this, this Roman language. Um, but uh, he fought a very long war against his uh, brother to seize control of the county of Anjou. He seems to have been a, a pretty efficient, probably kind of vicious guy. Was um, he the younger brother? Uh, Folk was the younger brother. That's right. Uh, and there, uh, uh, there you go. <laughs> he uh, he seized the county from his brother. And uh, he, the reason he's in, of interest to me is that at the end of his life, Folk wrote down his own family history. Uh, and that's something that is exceptionally rare, especially for someone who's not member of the clergy. Uh, you know, he probably dictated it. In fact, I'm pretty sure I can tell that he dictated it. Um, but, uh, but he left behind his own view of how he understood where his family came from. And he tells the story of uh, his, his family and the, and, the, and the strife that occurred, you know, kind of around the time of his, in his youth. But his, his, his story is also of great interest because his story is interrupted as he's telling it by the arrival of the Pope to preach the First Crusade. Um, so he gives you this very, very close chronological account of the arrival of a pope for the first time, you know, in this part of the world, preaching this holy war, unprecedented uh, holy war. Uh, and uh, he talks about meeting the pope, and the pope gives him a present, and uh, he feels very special. <laughs> you call you call his attempt to write his own family's history an experiment in literacy? He was attempting to co communicate something using text, which I believe was commonly communicated but not using texts. My thesis, my, my hypothesis about this text is that it was something that he intended to be read by his sons in order that they should know how to govern the county, they should know you know, why they're important, and um, also to know what kinds of things to avoid, <laughs> what leads to civil war, what leads to open dissent, what makes two brothers attack each other, etc. He wanted to not have that happen. So he was creating a record now, I think, that all over uh, the place in medieval Europe fathers were telling their sons these stories. And, and it's actually been shown that often mothers were telling their sons these stories. But uh, in this case, Folk, for whatever reason, decided he wanted a written version of that story. Um, that's why it's an experimental literacy. In other cases, I think there may have been similar experiments in the sense that, that for the chaplain or the monk to write down the family history, which they would then maybe maybe you know read to the family, that's that's also a kind of experiment in literacy. Um, you know, why why did they decide to write that text down that, that otherwise, presumably, they just would have said? Um, in the Middle Ages, you're always dealing with people who are, you know, we, we don't have access to this much larger world of the spoken uh, text. Uh, we only have this fragmentary written record uh, from which to access it, which is itself sort of fraught with problems. Some of these narratives are pretty grounded, but some of them are pretty fantastical. Mm -hmm. And there are ways that you can claim nobility that seem ridiculous. So like you told me the story. One guy said he was noble because 
the the founding ancestor of his family was good at combing his beard. Oh, there's, yeah. I mean, a better story probably is there is actually a, a common theme that runs through several different families um, uh, in both the continent and in England about um, associating them with essentially fantastical or legendary beasts. That's a more common trope that you find in these stories, which is really kind of interesting. Um, so there's uh, uh, the family of the Counts of... Uh, the Counts of Boulogne, who, 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 of, whose uh, ancestor was the first king of Jerusalem. And uh, in order to explain, essentially, this remarkable rise to power, you know, this guy goes east with the crusade. All the crusaders, you know, they don't, have a, they don't really have a, a particular leader. But when they get out there, this is the person that they make to be the king of Jerusalem. And this is a huge dignity for this family. Um, in order to explain how that happened... They come up with this incredibly complex story, or a completely complex story emerges around them, uh, which connects them. Essentially, says that they are descended from this knight uh, who uh, was uh, descended from a swan or a member of a family of swans, and and uh, there's it goes right into Celtic folklore. And uh, but but this is this is used as an as an explanation. And we have by the end of the 12th century, very serious historians, very serious monks who are writing histories say of course there's the family who are descended from the swan you know and that and they they repeat it as if it's it's that it's something that they believe to be true or at least something that a lot of people are saying that they have to respond to um in other families uh, uh i've i've located three or four instances of families who claim that on the first crusade their ancestors befriended a lion who then became like their sidekick on the crusade and would fight alongside them and you know whenever they were in a tough tight spot the lion would jump in at the last second and save them and the uh, lion the way the lion story goes it's a motif you find it's the same everywhere uh, the lion story is that um, you know the, the, the crusader uh, is deeply appreciative they've become best friends with this lion and it's like man it's the best friend uh, uh, here uh, out, in, out in, in Syria is a lion and when you go to come home um, you get on the boat and the boat sails and the lion can't join you can't get on the boat with you because the sailors are afraid you know they don't want the lion so the lion tries to swim after the boat and drowns and it's this scene of you know sort of friendship and uh, it's it's really kind of remarkable but th these are the sorts of stories that are told uh, in these family histories associated with crusaders in particular the original old yeller moment absolutely <laughs> I mean and uh, and and uh, I gave a talk here at Fordham a couple years ago where I talked about the lion story and uh, the 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 one of the most amazing things about the story is that it's a the last essentially piece of evidence we have about this story being told is a beautifully executed illuminated manuscript talking about lions in general just telling stories about lions and it comes to this story and it's got this beautiful picture of the, the man in the ship sailing away looking back over the, over the back of the ship and his lion kind of reaching up out of the water <laughs> with one paw <laughs> to get to him so it's a, obviously this really struck a chord with people You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson, spending the half hour with Nicholas Paul, a medieval historian. We're talking about noble families of the high Middle Ages and how hard it can be for historians to understand the world of the distant past without letting the world of the present get in the way. I was listening to an interview with Chris Wickham, who wrote um, right. The Inheritance of Rome. Mm -hmm. And he was talking, he, and he lots said... Of, and lots of other lots books. Lots of other books, but <laughs> most recently, I think, Inheritance right. of Rome. 
He's a medieval, uh, medieval historian. Uh, one of the things he was saying is he says, I try to strive against this tendency um, towards teleology in right. history, towards arguing that everything back then is leading to us and that's why you should learn it. Hmm. I can imagine that somebody learning about the Crusades now would want to make comparisons yeah, there's to a, our common there, and it's completely understandable. There is a there is a very strong uh, desire to to uh, find. I mean, there's this can run along two different lines. I mean, on a, in a kind of abstract way, if you're talking about religiously motivated violence, um, it appears, although you know, obviously we all live in our own generations, but it, it appears that we live in a time when religiously motivated violence is relevant in a way that it maybe wasn't for you know parts of the 20th century you know we, we, we live in an age of, re- of renewed interest in this in this subject so of course there could be this kind of abstract comparison to you know what what makes someone responsive to particular messages uh, that link um, piety and violence you know that that, that, that that open up the avenues of the world's great religions which for the majority of their adherents today, uh, don't really involve violence as a as a general expression of piety, but suddenly you know the, the suddenly that 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 switch can be turned that that the person can be can be introduced to that that concept. So that there there's there's that uh, a sort of strand of thought that wants to connect things up in that way. But there's also the more general people are often I often find myself myself in very frustrating conversations with people who. Um, uh, want to explain general kind of Middle Eastern politics, uh, and uh, well, to put it you know in a pretty simple way, the clash of civilizations in terms of a a, a, a paradigm that that includes the Crusades, where you know people say things like you know well we've always been fighting them right, and you know that the, 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 to place the United States to place the West in some sort of a one paradigm that is also associated with Christian Western Europe, um, and what you find of course is that that. That is actually an extremely popular paradigm among uh, 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 hardcore kind of Islamic extremists because it's a very easy way to to kind of link up. Uh, 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 you know, all of our enemies have always been the same or always the same. Um, but of course, in all of these cases, that's that that is an anachronism. You know, it must be an anachronism. Um, uh, the expression of religious violence uh, uh, by one group of Christians in the Middle Ages. Um, must be viewed on in terms of its own social cultural milieu, uh, uh, you know. I mean, and 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 studies of those of the people who, who were involved in crusades, you know, seek to place them very specifically in contexts even to do with their region, uh, to do with the kinds of of uh, of saints, cults, and things like that that they're exposed to in a particular area, uh, not to draw some kind of larger. But yes, I understand that there is a great desire to do that. <laughs> um, uh, it's 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 one I guess it's one of the struggles. I think that as a historian of the Crusades, I maybe confront this more often than other historians. This desire for resonance, and it is a challenge. It's really hard to know exactly how how to appropriately respond to this without cutting yourself off and just because the, the danger is to say no. What we're doing is really completely irrelevant. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there, there is no relevance whatsoever to between to what's going the, on now to what's exactly, going on. In exactly, exactly. That's what you want to say as your first reaction because the alternative. Uh, it's so easy to really obscure and mash up um, history, and it, and it really any kind of consideration which so openly acknowledges interest in the present will distort the past. It will distort the past. I mean, you can't. You can't take these kinds of paradigms and go into the past and expect to come out with anything except what you're looking for. So, so why, um, 
I'm sure you have to make this case, even if it's implicit, in like your lectures, your your discussions to students. Why study the Middle Ages? Why is it relevant? Why is it useful? Why is it interesting? Well, my view on this is different than a lot of people's. I mean, well, that's not actually. I mean, it's not. It's not. It's not like I'm alone in this. But I know that there are different camps in this in this area. And and um, my view is not. You know, a lot, some medievalists would say that the value is in the difference. Uh, you know, if we only studied things that were like us and that somehow made easy connections with, you know, our day-to-day lives, we would be essentially isolating ourselves, would be insulating ourselves with a sort of self-reflective mirror you know, world where everything just looked the same and, you know, kind of confirmed us in who we are and what we thought. But if we deliberately look at things and from the very beginning acknowledge the difference, if we acknowledge the, the, the vast gulf that lies between us and these people, I think we actually learn a lot more. In some cases, I think we actually learn a lot more about ourselves, um, not because there's something, some hidden nugget in these people that's just like us and we have to just find it. You know, if we dig deep enough, we'll find the thing that's just like, you know, that, that reflects contemporary American society in 12th century France. No, that's not what's not going to happen. But it's in looking at these people and, tr- and, tr- and trying to find what the appropriate questions are and trying to find the appropriate language to describe this alien world to which we ultimately cannot have any more access than, you know, the texts and, and objects and things that we have. Um, we learn a lot more about the process of discovery and we learn a lot more about uh, the way um, broader kind of human systems work just by just by conducting those inquiries. I don't know whether that makes sense. Does that make does. sense? Okay, it's the it's the it's the search that matters, <laughs> and 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 uh, and I think the search shapes us uh, to some extent. You know, the the the, the 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 way we seek and and the the questions we ask and uh, are continually re- reassessing our perspectives. I think that's really really important for us. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Well, thank you. Nicholas Paul is an assistant professor of history at Fordham University and a Mellon Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study. That's it for Fordham Conversations. You can find archived shows on WFUV.org or subscribe to our podcast. Become a fan of our Facebook page by searching WFUV's Fordham Conversations or follow us on Twitter. We're registered as Focon, F-O-C-O-N. Robin Shannon will be in this seat next week. Stay tuned for Cityscape at 730. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Mary Wilson. (laughs) 